Hello and welcome to the Bridging the Spiritual Gap podcast. In this week's episode, I was honored to be interviewed by Brian Crombie on his radio show on Saga 960 AM. The Brian Crombie Radio Hour is on every night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Saga 960 AM and streamed online at saga960am.ca. Please be sure to check out Brian's YouTube channel and access all of his podcasts and videocasts at briancrombie.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-C-R-O-M-B-I-E.com. Enjoy the episode. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. Well, it's been a tough week. Uh, It's Friday, uh, weekend's here, and I thought that we'd uh, reach out to uh, an inspirational person who I've come across and uh, get some recommendations for uh, living a better life. I want to introduce you to Jennifer Fable. Um, She is known for the words, you are not broken. It's become her personal and professional mantra, and one that she intends to spread out to as many people as possible, and one of the reasons why she's reached out uh, to us to uh, speak with us uh, this evening. She's been a mentor, a coach, a motivational speaker, and she offers alternative support for anyone suffering uh, from overwhelming uh, things, unexplained sadness, past trauma, and that isn't finding the healing they want through traditional mental health services, and are tired of what she calls the emotional roller coaster. Through her live and virtual events, Jen specializes in bringing a mixture of humor, honesty, and personal truths to help inspire a new perspective on health, growth, and change. So Jen, who are you? You say that you've walked a path of brokenness and lived to tell the story. How have you walked the path of brokenness? So um, my path of brokenness and story started when I was 19 years old and I was diagnosed with seven different mental health diagnoses, including uh, anorexia, bulimia, major depression, generalized anxiety disorder, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, suicidal ideation, and self-harm, which means, yes, there are scars on my body that I put there. And I had multiple specialists tell me that I was broken, that statistically I would never recover from any of it, that I would be on medication my whole life, and that the best I could hope for was just to learn to manage the symptoms of my brokenness, but that I was just born with something wrong with me, and I just had to learn to deal with it. And yet, here I am many years later, I've been fully recovered for over a decade, medication-free for over a decade, and I now have the honor of working with other people and helping them understand that no matter how many very smart people with very impressive degrees on the wall and letters after their name tell you that you're broken, it's just a story that we're telling ourselves and that it's not necessarily true, that everyone can find healing. What what an incredible situation. So like, how did you get through this? Uh, In the beginning, I didn't. I smacked into a lot of walls. I believed the story that I was broken. I did. uh, I have a degree in psychology. So I studied it because of course, everyone who studies psychology is there to figure out what's wrong with me. Um, And I was looking for answers there. And I didn't really find any answers. Um, I went to talk therapy. I did the whole medication merry-go-round. You know, you start on one med. Statistically, I was told I had a 12% chance of ever being able to live without medication because once you come off it, not at a certain number of times, it's probably not going to happen. I was seen 12% by... 12% chance. 12% no, chance. A 12% chance. Oh, well, that's the question, right? Well, they go by if you go on medication and then come off it and have to go on it again. Each time you come off and go back on, your chances of living without it apparently drop each time. And so, and so are different, uh, um, you know, antidepressants that you're, you were on? Correct. Yes. I was on multiples for years. I was seen by crisis teams in hospitals, um, outpatient programs. They wanted me on inpatient. I refused. Um, And I did everything I could to within the system to try to find my way and to work with what I had. And I kind of got to this place of like, all right, I guess I just this is the hand I was dealt. I guess I just have to live with it. And I was just making the best of it. And then I luckily ended up where all my anxiety came into a massive phobia where I wouldn't leave the house. Um, And when it comes to phobias, there's very little interventions. And that led me down an alternative path. And I was shocked when after working with 
this alternative path, not only did the phobia disappear, but I suddenly didn't need the meds anymore. I suddenly found this new connection to myself. And then uh, I'm very nosy and nerdy. And I'm like, well, how did that work? Why is no one talking about this? How is it that four years of a degree and 13 years of personal therapy never came close? And yet one session with my coach nailed on the head what all that stuff missed. And so I made it my mission to figure out what this was. And that kind of led me to now working with others to help them. So what was this alternative method? Uh, the alternative method combines Jungian psychology, Gestalt psychology, and the dreaded H-word hypnosis, which you don't say that in public without people taking a step away from you. So you got to ease into the, the H-word. Um, and it's basically about conscious mind, unconscious mind integration, how to balance the hemispheres of the brain, how to connect in with the wisdom inside of us in a way that makes an actual difference in our life versus you know, a lot of the spiritual bypassing where people are all about love and light, but they don't really know how to connect with it. Um, this path offered me a way to actually connect with myself in a way that nothing else allowed me to do. And how did you come up with finding it? Uh, totally accidental. I, like I said, I had a massive phobia. It was of insects, bugs, um, which doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but Ontario, uh, where I live is very buggy in the summertime and I literally wouldn't leave my house. And when it comes to phobias, there's really two alternatives. There's desensitization therapy, which means they would eventually introduce me to and make me sit in a room with a bug. And I was like, nope, <laughs> I'm not going to pay for that. Who's going to do that? Um, or hypnosis, which I completely did not believe in. I thought was bunk and I was desperate and 30 odd years old. And even going to like the hardware store where they have the bug spray, like it sounds funny now, but it wasn't at the time. I literally couldn't walk down the aisles where there was a picture of insects right. and I'm a very smart person. And so you feel really dumb not being able to rationally tell yourself that it's just a butterfly, you're not gonna die. But meanwhile, there I was running into traffic to avoid a butterfly. And so I reached out to my chiropractor at the time because I'm like, I'm not just gonna look up online and get some random person to scramble my brain. I'm like, do you happen to know someone who does hypnosis? And she's like, actually I do. I'm like, really? It's interesting. And um, I had nothing to lose. Uh, so I made a session with that person. And like I said, in one session, she nailed on the head what 13 years of therapy and a four-year degree in psych never came close to. And I didn't believe in it. I didn't think it could work for me. I thought I was too smart for it because I'm a little snobby. And uh, then, like I said, within a couple months, I was shocked that not only did the phobia disappear, but everything else did as well. And I was able to actually enter recovery um, and am recovered, which is something that we are taught is not allowed in the eating disorder world. We are taught not that the best we can recover. It's not apparently possible. In the eating disorder world, we are taught that the best we can hope for is long-term recovery, that we will always have issues around food and our body, and that we can just kind of come to terms with it. But that's what I was taught by all the doctors, all the specialists, that recovery, full recovery is not actually possible. And yet again, here I am. You know, it's interesting. I spoke to someone just recently that had uh, um, an eating disorder and uh, and she was of the belief that uh, similar to you, that you couldn't recover, that people told her you almost had to constantly say it. I've got an eating disorder and, and you're sort of like uh, the attitude with uh, AA that says, you know, I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic uh, and yeah. that you admit that uh, or uh, say it out loud forever. And she said, no, the problem with saying it out loud is you're just reaffirming that you have that. And, uh, and, and she says, I wanted to be able to say I was a recovered um, alcoholic. Uh, I was exactly. a recovered uh, um, eating disorder. And, and similarly, she says she has. Yeah, and that's just it. We're taught that this story that we tell ourselves, and we all have that, right? That story that we tell ourselves about ourselves to ourselves. And the story I told myself was broken because that's all I was told I was allowed to tell myself. I mean, these people I went to were very smart. They had a lot of degrees on the wall, a lot of letters after their name. And so I believed them uh, until I had evidence that it wasn't true. And that's why I'm so adamant about working with people and spreading the message, especially nowadays, mental health is really at the forefront, um, which, I mean, it's always been there and we always have those days where we talk about it. But it's nice to actually have it come more at the forefront. More and more people are looking for ways to find their way out of the dark hole that they got themselves into and aren't happy with what they're getting out of the traditional system and are looking for ways to actually connect with themselves and heal, not just manage the symptoms, but actually heal through it. Actually get better. 
actually get better. And and not enough people are talking about the fact that that's actually possible. Well, you're an inspiration. Um, and uh, it's a fascinating story. We're going to take a break for some messages and come back more with Jennifer Fable and her story in just a minute. Stay with us. <laughs> Welcome back to the Brian Crumby Radio Hour on Saga 960. Having an interesting conversation with uh, Jennifer Fable, who uh, who um, thinks that uh, you are not broken is the sort of the mantra of her professional and personal life right now. Because when she was uh, a teenager, she was diagnosed to have seven different uh, mental health disorders, including uh, uh, anorexia and bulimia, um, but then a, a whole bunch of other ones as well that uh, she was telling us about, and we're going to talk about a little bit more. Um, she then did a, a, a psychology degree and it didn't help her, and she went to a whole bunch of different uh, professional uh, people, and that didn't help her. And then finally, hypnosis helped her. Um, Jennifer, um, so I've done hypnosis, and all it did was feel really relaxed. It didn't do anything else for me. So what was it about the hypnosis and how was it that it solved your, your phobia? So the tools that worked with me and that I use with others is a combination of Ericksonian hypnosis as well as neuro-linguistic programming. And the two combined allow us to access information in the unconscious mind that already lives there, but that most people are tuned out of. Most of us live our life trying to just think our way out of things. We don't actually feel our emotions. We think our emotions. We rationalize our emotions. We do anything we can to not have to deal with them. And so in traditional hypnosis, the more... Um, uh, the kind that you would have experienced. Yeah, you will feel just relaxed. People think that hypnosis feels like something specific, but actually we spend about 95% of our day in the state of trance, which is what hypnosis induces. If you've ever driven somewhere and you got to your destination and then you're like, I don't remember any of that, um, that was trance. Your body was on autopilot. You maneuvered streets, you maneuvered pedestrians and all sorts of stuff, and you managed to get there, but you have no conscious recollection of it because you weren't thinking about it. Um, if you're in, uh, if you're watching a movie and if you've ever had the experience of someone talking to you while you're watching a movie and you had no idea that there was even a body in the room, that is a state of trance. And so when we're in a state of hypnosis, it feels normal and natural because we're in that place all the time. So the question isn't, can someone be hypnotized? The question is, what kind of trance are they creating on a daily basis? And that kind of brings us back to the story that we tell ourselves. The story or the trance of brokenness will feel just as real as the trance of healed. It's just a matter of how we're actually talking to ourselves because we're hypnotizing ourselves all the time. Okay, okay, so... I understand that then. Um, but then I guess my um, uneducated view of hypnosis was that you get hypnotized and then someone tells you to do something and you do it. So was someone telling you to uh, no longer have this uh, trauma and that's solved your problem? No, or it's... Not so much. The the style of hypnosis, because there's different kinds of hypnosis. There's the stage show hypnosis, which is based more on... Um, uh, oh gosh, Elman style, um, which is called the Rambo of hypnosis. So it's very much to the point and it's for entertainment purposes. In the style that I use, it's Ericksonian, it's more conversational. Um, and it allows someone to access parts of themselves that they don't have conscious access to on a daily basis. Because deep down, we all know what we need to do. It's just the societal conditioning that prevents us from actually doing it. We all know that we should speak up and, and be heard. And then we have this little voice saying, don't do that, they're going to judge you. And so how to get below that judgment voice and into our own voice and how to tell the difference between our own voice and the judgment, that's really where hypnosis can really be a benefit. And so this first hypnotist that you uh went to see and you and the, and the issue at the time was the phobia about bugs what did they do they told you stop worrying about bugs smarten up <laughs> a little bit no not quite uh, there's actually a technique it's called the fast phobia technique believe it or not and it is a double dissociative technique so in traditional trauma therapy what they have you do is they have you remember a traumatizing moment of your life and they have you relive it and the idea is that we're going to flood you with all these really negative emotions all at once. And once you realize, oh, I didn't die, you're going to suddenly have this aha moment and be okay. And it is effective and it works. And most people don't have the chops to keep up with it because you're going to be traumatized over and over again before you have this 
this aha moment. And so what the fast phobia model does is allows us to double dissociate someone from their trauma or from double that phobia. We associate? Double dissociate. So when we're associated into a memory, we're living it as if it's real. And we, if we relive it over and over again, our body responds as if it's real. In a dissociative state, we kind of watch it as if we're watching like from the third person. So I can see myself in the picture and I'm watching myself do it. And so therefore I'm a little bit more removed from the emotions, but I still see it's me. And so I still have that traumatizing connection. In a double dissociation, we have them watch themselves, watch like a movie screen. And it allows the person to reprocess the trauma without reliving the trauma. And it is brilliant in its impact. I've used it with my own clients for severe trauma, um, some unspeakable trauma for other kinds of phobias. Uh, my very first client actually was um, a woman who was unable to swallow pills. And she's like, you know, that sounds so silly, but as I get older, I need to be able to take a supplement. And every time I think about swallowing a pill, I choke. And so in the first session, I gave her an imaginary pill. And I said, here, take this imaginary pill. She says, okay. And I gave her a real glass of water. I said, put the imaginary pill in your mouth and, and swallow the water. And she couldn't. She started to choke and panic because she had this um, built-in memory of when she choked back from childhood. And so we did a couple sessions by the, I think it was the second or third session. I gave her an imaginary pill. I'm like, let's see what happened. She swallowed it. And I said, okay, well, let's test a real one. So I got like a little teeny tiny sugar pill. Um, and she put it in her mouth and took her a second because she'd never swallowed a pill before. So she's like, hmm. And then she swallowed it. And I think I was more excited than she was. <laughs> it was just amazing to see someone go from absolute panic and terror to being able to have her brain reprocess the trauma, not in it, because your unconscious mind can't tell the difference between real and imagined. So when you do that trauma therapy and you relive it, your body's literally reliving the trauma. So it installs as you're trying to pull it out or uninstall it. So the double dissociative method allows us to uninstall it without reliving it. And it's quite clever. And this is what this person did uh, with you to get over the phobia of bugs. Did that as well as, um, like I said, some Ericksonian hypnosis and something called timeline therapy, which is the same idea as trauma therapy, but instead of associating you into a memory, we do it from a distance so that you can get the wisdom without reliving it. Get the wisdom without reliving it. So, so that you analyze the lessons learned without actually having to go through the trauma all over again? Basically, so that I learn, hey, I'm okay. I can keep myself safe. I know how to protect myself, um, which I can't access that information when I'm freaking out from the trauma. And so by having someone get the information and the lessons learned without having to relive it allows the process to go a lot faster, a lot smoother. And it means that I can help someone without having to re-traumatize them continuously because that's it's hard. A lot of people, a lot of people give up on the desensitization therapy, which is the current mainstream way of dealing with trauma. Because you're going through trauma over and over and over again. It makes sense. Right? Yeah. Who's, who, who would want to do that? Who, who would sign up that? for that <laughs> for, yeah. for sometimes years? Okay. So you did this hypnosis and uh, these several different techniques and you got over your, uh, your bug aversion. Uh, your uh, phobia against bugs. Um, what led you to then try the same hypnosis for your other problems, your other issues? I actually didn't. It just kind of went along with it. I only did it for the phobia. And then a couple months later, after I literally only took three months of working with this coach every other week or so. And um, I was surprised to find that I started feeling better and having more positive thoughts and the dark thoughts that I used to have just stopped being there and then again I'm nerdy and I'm like how the hell did that work like why is no one talking about this how is it that how did that work and so I mean I was working in animal health at the time I managed animal hospitals I did marketing for an animal health company I was fine in my job um, but I wanted to know how this worked and so I took the training just because I wanted to find out, never expecting to ever work with anyone. And once I understood how it all works, I was like, that's brilliant. And then, like I said, this person came up to me. I actually had posted on social media. I'm like, I'm a hypnotherapist now because I thought that was funny. Um, and someone came up to me. She's like, hey, can you help me with this pill phobia? And I'm like, oh, I guess. Like this thing that I thought was hilarious can actually make a difference in someone's life in the well, same it, way it did for me. Life, it sounds like. Big it time. made a huge difference in my life and so it gave you have no meaning. problems you have no eating disorders anymore not at all not at all and 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 you don't hurt yourself anymore correct not at all 
So all those things have gone away. Completely gone away. Completely so all gone away. People that said there was a 12% chance that you wouldn't have to take drugs. Like what what what's what's wrong with our mental health diagnosis? It is based on the best information we have at this moment. And I think that the biggest problem is that emotions are a subjective experience and it is impossible to get objective data about the subjective experience and so therefore we dismiss it it is impossible to get objective data about the subjective experience yeah how do you how do you objective how do you objectively modify um measure measure thank you <laughs> how do you objectively measure someone's subjective experience it's all very personal what goes on inside my head the stories i tell myself it's my truth it's my reality and so it makes it a very difficult thing to objectively measure and so instead we stick to the measurable results and so we talk about strategies we talk about medications we talk about things that we have actual data for but the subjective experience kind of falls into the cracks and it's a shame because that subjective experience that story that we tell ourselves is our reality and so while it might not fit into the scientific model it does fit into how our lives operate and what feels real to us and so that's kind of in my opinion where there is that disconnect how do we get people information about their subjective experience and that's where i get to work with my one-on-one -on -one clients and i run trainings to teach people how to work with their emotions how to understand them not how to push them aside or how to um manage symptoms but how to actually use your your emotions are meant to be a biofeedback mechanism between your higher thinking self and your instinctual self and we're not taught well, that okay but most people think i would have thought that mental health is uh, either caused by something genetic they talk about uh, you know alcoholism or addictive behavior becoming something that uh, that uh, you inherit um and then uh, or alternatively uh, something based on trauma. Uh, you were raped or you were in a war or you were in a fire or, you know, something, you know, catastrophic uh, happened to you. Um, what you're saying is it's a biofeedback loop. That's sort of different, isn't it? It is. And if you think about it, so when I feel a certain emotion, my body releases different hormones, different neurotransmitters, different chemicals in my body. And so my emotions create a biochemical shift in my body. If over time I experience the same negative emotions, I'm going to create a specific biochemical shift in my body that over time will lead to structural changes in the brain system. And that doesn't mean that it can't work in the reverse as well. If I find a way to find wisdom in the emotions, if I find meaning in my experiences, then that causes my body to release different biochemicals, different hormones different neurotransmitters so I can create that biochemical shift in my favor and like I get it I bought that story as well I mean I was told by many doctors that the problem is I just don't have enough serotonin I don't have enough uh, norepinephrine not enough dopamine in my brain you know they were all anyone in mental health has been told the story that a diabetic doesn't make enough insulin and they need to take insulin and there's no shame in that and someone who has depression or anxiety is not making enough neurotransmitters and we need to take it outside of ourselves in the pill form. And I've actually had people in my classes be like, you know, I don't believe you. This is what I was taught. It's just a brain problem. And I, I say, I agree 100%. Then explain me. Explain people who break the generational lines, the people who have heart disease in the family and break away from it, the people who have mental health in their family and break away from it, the people who recover from alcoholism. There are a lot of us out there and we're somehow on the fringe and so dismissed as irrelevant. And to me, it's kind of like the placebo effect. You know, it's dismissed as irrelevant. And I'm like, well, but the placebo effect proves that the mind has the power to actually heal. And so it's the chicken and egg and nature versus nurture. What comes first? Is it the biochemical shift from emotions or is it a defective brain structure? And how do these two interact with each other? And how is it that so many people are like me and find a way out of it? So this is interesting. Um, and your analogy of the placebo effect is kind of uh, compelling. Uh, why don't you explain the placebo effect to everyone just in case they don't understand it? 
Sure. The placebo effect is the idea that so whenever we do scientific studies, we always have um, people who get the actual medication and people who get saline or a sugar pill. And this is the control group. And so we want to see what is actually being attributed to the medication and what is just what someone's um, expectations are. So we know that the person's expectations plays a huge role in the healing process. And we evaluate it in terms of making sure that, okay, so if you have 100 people and they're given 50 people are given the actual medication, 50 people are given a sugar pill or saline or some placebo, we find that there is improvements in the placebo group. A certain percentage of them will actually find improvement. This idea that because they believed they were getting the real medication, because they expected to get better, they did and their body biologically actually shifts. And so there's actually a wonderful book. It's called Mind Over Medicine by Lisa Rankin. And she talks about the placebo effect and then the nocebo effect. The idea that if our expectations is for a negative outcome, we can bring that on as well, which anyone who suffers from anxiety knows that one very well. Right. So the placebo effect shows that our mind plays a huge role in healing. And yet we dismiss it as ah, that's just the placebo control group. I'm like, well, but that shows that the mind is powerful. Why are we not tuning into that more? You know, it's interesting. Um, I used to work in the pharmaceutical business and uh, I had in our company antidepressants um, and uh, and we had to have really big sample sizes for our studies because there was a placebo impact. And, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, I, we went farther into describing, um, I think uh, you would agree with this, but it was not just they took that the, they thought they were going to get better. It was that uh, they went into a room with someone with a white coat that had doctor on their, uh, on their, uh, on their coat that said they would get better and they took the pill. Um, and so it was, it was uh, sort of this whole uh, environment that said, and even though they were in a test that half, they knew that half of the people were being given a sugar pill. So they knew that half of them may not actually be getting the right thing because someone told them, here it is and you're going to get better. They got better. Exactly. And so then it makes you kind of question why I was being told you have a 12% chance of recovery if the expectations of the patient is that much of an importance in mental health. Why are we not offering more hope? And the reason for that is because hope comes with, you know, lawsuits. <laughs> you so told me I'd get better. <laughs> you got to be, be told if you think you can get better and you want to get better and you believe you can get better, you will get better. And you have to have the right tools and resources. If someone is stuck in depression or in, in anxiety, they don't have the resources that they need. They don't have the ability to work through how to problem solve their emotions, what to do with those emotions when they come up. We're taught how to how to manage them, you know, like I remember um, one of the coping strategies I was taught by one of my therapists long ago was instead of harming myself, they wanted me to put a rubber band on my wrist and snap it instead of turning to more uh, extreme measures. And I, I remember sitting there and like, so you're okay with me hurting myself. You're just, just, yeah, just nothing that makes you uncomfortable and creates scars. So you're okay with me having the mentality of wanting to harm myself. You just don't want me to, you want me to do it in a more socially appropriate way. Um, and that was, that's the therapy that was given for self-harm. Just harm yourself, but let's do it in a way that's a little less damaging. And I mean, it's, it's better, but is it? <laughs> but it seems that, you know, this harm reduction that uh, people in uh, addiction, um, have, which is uh, if they're on cocaine, you know, get them off cocaine, but get them on marijuana or something like this. Is that the same analogy? Um, not quite. I mean, with something with something like um, cocaine or the hardcore drugs, we know that and studies have shown that when someone has an addiction, it's because they are um, there's lack of social connection. Um, it's isolation that often leads to addictions. And so we can't just get someone off the drug and then leave them with the same tools and resources they had that led to the addiction in the first place. We need to teach them how to how to say no. We need to teach them how to connect with people. We need to teach them how to find ways to connect with people that feels authentic to them. So we can't just swap out one drug for another and be like, yay, better. Um, but that is sometimes where the system leaves us. And they say, you know, look, well, look, you're not you're not harming yourself as much. You're not doing as much coke. We must have done a good job. Yay. But the person themselves doesn't really feel much better. So I um, interviewed a person who said, think about uh, the addiction or the mental health issue uh, as a relationship and whether the relationship is actually doing you any good or not and break up with the relationship. Does that make any sense? 
It does make sense, but it doesn't take into account the fact that so many of us are taught relationships based on the Hallmark Channel, which is like codependency. <laughs> we're, we're taught that a relationship means giving up our own sense of self, giving up our needs to please another person. And so if we don't know how to have healthy relationships outside of us with another person, the chances of us having a healthy relationship with substances or things in our life. So it's, it's nice to say, just break up with it. But how? We're not taught the how of it. We're not taught, I have to first know that I am worthy and deserving of better things before I can take that step. And that's the missing point. That's the, the piece that I like to help people fill in. We're chatting tonight with uh, Jennifer Fable, who uh, is a uh, coach, um, a, a keynote speaker, uh, a, a motivational speaker, and she's got something called Live Life Unbroken, which is one of her programs, which we're going to uh, talk about a little bit after a message break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour, Saga 960. We're chatting tonight with Jennifer Fable. Um, fascinating person. She's a mentor, a coach, and a motivational speaker today. Uh, she coaches people to try to get over their phobias and uh, their, uh, their mental health issues. Um, and she's got a business called Live Life Unbroken. What does that mean, unbroken, to you? So Unbroken is actually based on the Japanese art of kintsukuroi, which is the art form of putting together broken pottery with molten gold. So in our society, when something stops functioning as we deem it should, uh, we, we throw it away. It's broken. It's useless. It's worthless. We don't want it anymore. Or what we try to do is we try to put it back together and be like, Shh, nothing happened. Um, but in Japan, they're smart. When they see these broken pieces of pottery, they would put it together with molten gold, in essence, highlighting the scars because they believe each piece to be more beautiful for having broken and healed. And what's really cool is that where these pieces are put back together, they're actually stronger than they were before in the same way that a broken bone doesn't really break in the same way twice. It's stronger for having healed. These pieces of pottery are stronger for having broken and healed. And so we can't say that they're whole anymore. And they're certainly not broken. So they are unbroken, which means stronger than before. Unbroken, stronger unbroken. than before. Yeah. And 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 you your your business is called Live Life Unbroken. So how do you help people live life unbroken? It's through hypnosis. Uh, through my one-on-one -on -one work, through my trainings, through my workshops, I help people connect, the, bridge the gap between the head and their heart. That was the biggest thing for me. I was bridge their gap between their head and their heart. Yeah, when I would go to my therapy, I, I mean, I was I was a terrible patient when I was in therapy because I have a degree in psych. So whatever they told me, I'm like, yeah, I know. Um, and I'm like, my head understands exactly what you're saying, but how do I make my heart believe that? And I used to ask that to my therapist. She's like, oh, well, eventually it'll just happen. And it never did. And so in my one-on-one -on -one work, in my classes, and my trainings, my job is to help people bridge that gap. Fascinating. Um, you uh, talk about a difference between nice and compassionate. Yes. You say being nice is dangerous. Yes. Being nice means being a doormat. Being nice means putting everyone else's needs ahead of my own, which means everyone loves me, but my life sucks. And it's not compassionate. When we are being nice to people, we're not doing it because we want to offer kindness. We're doing it so that they like us. And so when we're being nice, we are, in essence, manipulating to get people to like us. We're being fake. We are doing what we think someone expects of us so that they'll like us, but we're not necessarily being compassionate. And this is a lesson I learned. When you're being nice, you're manipulating someone to like you. Yeah, I'm not being nice because I want to, because that's who I am. Nine times out of 10, if you talk to people, they're being nice because they want to be liked. And they're telling people what they want to hear so that they'll like you. That's manipulation. That's not authentic to myself. That's not compassionate. If I am not letting my, if I'm not letting people actually know me, because I'm more concerned so about what they think of me. doesn't look good or it's where, you know, put on weight and they say, have I put on weight? You got to be authentic and say, yes, you have put on weight. You can't be nice and say, no, you look fantastic. You can be compassionate. There's a way to be compassionate and still be authentic. Being nice means lying to some degree just to make people, it's appeasing. No one wants to be appeased. 
It ticks people off. I don't want to be appeased. If I ask someone, did I put on weight? I don't want them to be like, yeah, you fat. But I would like them to say the truth. I don't want them to just be like, no, no, you look fine. That's not authentic. That doesn't help me. That doesn't feel good to them. It's nice, but it's not compassionate. The compassionate answer is to answer my question, but from a place of kindness, but nice Nice, actually, in one of the trainings I went to years ago, we decided it was an acronym for Not in Compassionate Empathy. And I learned when I managed, uh, I was in management for a while, and um, you have to give honest feedback to your employees so that they know what they need. And I, in the beginning, was too busy being nice. And as a result of that, I cost someone her job because I didn't give her honest feedback. I wanted her to like me, and I didn't want her to be mad at me. And so I was nice, but it wasn't compassionate. Had I been honest with her, she could have kept her job. And that's always stuck with me. I understand that you run a course called uh, Rewrite Your Story from Broken to Unbreakable. Yes. You've, we've heard a little bit about your story. Um, how you rewrote it is through this uh, hypnosis and uh, through other programs? Yeah, through, through connecting the conscious mind, unconscious mind integration through um, Ericksonian hypnosis through timeline therapy, through learning how to understand the wisdom in my emotions versus how to make them go away and just deal with them. And how do you get other people to rewrite their story? Same thing? Same thing. Yeah. So the class that I offer is more of an introduction so that people can get an idea. Like most of us don't think about the story that we tell ourselves. Most of us don't realize that the story that we're telling ourselves is in a lot of ways creating our reality versus describing our reality. And so the course is all about telling people and teaching them how to start to tune into that. Um, It starts with getting people to write their story as a paragraph. And then I have them boil it down to a single sentence and then a single word. And people are often very surprised by where their story is starting. And that's why it's called Broken to Unbreakable, because, of course, my story, when I boiled it down, was broken. And a lot of people, when they boil down the story that they're telling themselves in their head, is not how they want to live. What, what caused your, your brokenness? Ah, gosh, <laughs> that's a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other like hour talk. You know, I mean, growing up, we were taught to be nice. Growing up, I was taught that being angry was not allowed. And so I learned instead of letting my anger out and expressing myself, I learned how to be quiet. I learned how to try to be invisible. I learned how to try to make myself not seen because I thought that that would be safer because my anger was a threat to other people in my life. And instead of being taught how to use my anger, so when, we, when we're feeling angry, it's usually because we have to speak up and set a boundary. Somehow we're giving too much or we're not receiving enough. And so anger is one of the most important emotions that we have. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that depression and anxiety are actually deeply repressed anger. And most people, if you talk to them, Deeply yeah. repressed anger. Anger, yeah. I actually give a talk. It's uh, it's called "You're Not Anxious, You're Pissed Off." You tell me someone who has depression and anxiety. I will show you someone who doesn't know what they need or how to get their needs met in a healthy way. And so they're pissed. Of course they're pissed. They're not getting their needs met. They're being nice. They're making everyone around them happy, but they don't know what they need or how to speak up. And so they're hiding their anger. And over time, that Hide leads to a lot of problems. Depressed, they get mental health issues. Well, when you're not acknowledging your anger, it means you're not acknowledging your boundaries. Your boundaries are how you know where you are and where you are not, what is in your realm of control and what is not in your realm of control. So, your boundaries are directly tied to your sense of self. And so, if anger is the emotion that your unconscious mind uses to let you know when something's going on with your boundaries, then that means anger is directly tied to our sense of self, and yet it's the first emotion we're taught to turn off. So what do you do? You tell people to do scream therapy or something like that? Actually, I do. I do promote something called anger work. Um, I think every adult should do it. Anger work. It is a five-minute process. You spend two minutes beating the snot out of a pillow, and then three minutes just venting. Because you know what? Those angry thoughts we have are valid. We don't want to spew them onto our partner or our coworkers or our boss because we'll get fired and end up broken you know, divorced and alone, but we do need to honor it. If it's in your head and it's valid, so we need to give it somewhere to go. Otherwise it just rattles around in our brain all day and makes us nuts. So yeah, <laughs> I, I, I advise people to go do anger work. And um, pre-COVID I was running retreats and at the retreats, we actually do what's called screaming at trees and everyone thinks it's insane until they do it. And then they love it. <laughs> 
Screaming at trees. Screaming and, at and trees. When you're so venting good. all this stuff, do you do you tell people to vent it to you or a therapist or somebody other than the person that they're angry with? Journal. They're journal. The, your anger is your unconscious mind letting you know that you're giving too much or not receiving enough. And so we need to process it. We need to give somewhere to go. But you don't want to blast it onto your coworkers and friends. If you're constantly venting your anger at your friends, they're going to start avoiding you. And so, right, we all have that one friend who's just exhausting because every time you talk to them, it's just all their problems. And so I say, let's give voice to it, but let's vent it into a journal. Let's punch the heck out of a pillow because it's a lot less paperwork than if you punch a person because that gets the cops involved and lawyers. It's too much paperwork. So punch a pillow, vent into your journal, get it out of you so that when you show up to your relationships with your friends or your partner, you're showing up without all that baggage because what we do is we take that baggage then we project it out onto the other people around us and that's no fun. So yeah, just vent it into your journal. Just get it out. Hmm. Fascinating. Let's go back to, um, you know, what we say to ourselves, our stories. Uh, and, and you say that you also do uh, neuro-linguistic programming. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Um, you know, I, I coming back to this idea about uh, the stories we tell ourselves and, uh, you know, you say that uh, people said that you couldn't get over your eating disorder, but you got over your eating disorder in Alcoholics Anonymous. They think that you got to say for the rest of your life that, uh, you know, I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic. Um, what neuro linguistic program we, we would say would be if you say that all the time, then you'll end up being an alcoholic or an addict. Uh, so do you disagree and say, you know, almost believe that you got to start saying, I'm a recovered alcoholic. I'm a recovered addict. I don't have an eating disorder. I'm a normal human being. I think that when you are in the depths of addiction, the 12-step program is necessary because you can't go from depths of addiction to telling yourself, I'm fine and have any authenticity. You're basically lying to yourself. So that's not good. I think the 12-step program is wonderful. I would love to see a couple steps added on to get someone, because I, I mean, I've worked with people who for 13, 14, 15 years more go to their meetings and say, I am an alcoholic. And they haven't had a drink in decades, but they are still claiming that story. And I think that's where neuro-linguistic programming can come in. Someone who is just getting started on their journey for recovery, they need this 12 steps. There is a purpose to them, and I think it's a wonderful program. And once someone has evolved through them, leaving them in that last step of you're always going to have this problem, I think it makes sense. But then it, uh, the question I always had was, so my addictive problem was food. I didn't have the luxury of not having access to food. With alcohol, it's easy to say, I'll just never go in a bar again. With uh, harder drugs, I just can stay away from them. How does someone get over an addiction to food or lack of food in my case? How does someone get over that addiction? Well, I had, I had to learn how to make friends with the subject of my addiction. So I had no choice but to go beyond the 12 steps. And so I think that the 12 steps are wonderful. And I love to see people take a couple steps after that. Hmm. That's uh, fascinating. So, you know, I, uh, I know someone who didn't want to go to rehab because they thought that that would uh, be confirming that they were an alcoholic. And, uh, and they said, um, I, I don't want to affirm that I'm an alcoholic. I want to, I, I want to get better. And so I don't want to go to rehab. And it was almost this vicious circle that they weren't solving the problem because they weren't uh, willing to admit that they had the problem. Because they didn't right. want to admit they had the problem because they thought if they admitted they had the problem, they would always have the problem and never, get, never be able to get over it. Right. And that's why the 12 steps are necessary because we have to move someone from denial. There's a difference between denial of my story and the reliving and replaying of my story ad nauseum. If you are in denial of your story, we need to get you to a place where you acknowledge that that is the story you're telling yourself. And then we need to take a couple extra steps to say, how do we now change that? How can we start to rewrite that story so that it's one that you want to live? We're having a fascinating conversation tonight with uh, Jennifer Fable, who is a coach and mentor and a motivational speaker um, and helps people um, get over their negative stories. It's a fascinating conversation, Jennifer. Thank you so much. We're going to take a break and come back with some concluding comments in just a minute. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Brian Crombie Radio Wire. We're having a really interesting conversation, at least I'm enjoying it immensely, with uh, Jennifer Fable, who is a mentor, a coach, a motivational speaker. She had seven different mental health issues when she was a teenager. She uh, got a psych degree. She went to numerous different experts. They told her she had a 12% chance 
of, uh, of not needing uh, uh, antidepressants uh, long-term in life. And she cured herself. And she cured herself through a, a coach that she went to that uh, got her uh, into hypnosis that, uh, first of all, uh, got her over a phobia of drugs. Uh, sorry, not drugs, of bugs. Um, and, uh, and, then, um, and then that solved everything. And she decided to look into it and uh, became a uh, hypnotist herself and a coach herself. And she runs a bunch of, uh, of courses and retreats and podcasts. Uh, Jennifer, how can people uh, access uh, you and some of your knowledge, um, your website, your podcasts, et cetera? Yes, uh, my website is www.livelifeunbroken.com. Uh, you can access my podcast. It's called Bridging the Spiritual Gap. It is on Spotify. It is on iTunes. It is recorded live. So every Thursday night at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, I run a he uh, weekly healing circle. Um, and we connect What's on a Zoom. Circle? A healing circle is where you gather to just get a time out from the COVIDness of life. And we do some breath work. We do some grounding. Um, every week I talk about a different topic related to mental health, emotions, change, growth, um, what it means to speak your truth. And that's what's recorded and that becomes my podcast. And then afterwards I follow up. I lead everyone through a meditation practice, some grounding, some bubbling and some breath work. And then we end with a gratitude. Bubbling? What's some bubbling? Bubbling is energetic boundaries. It's literally imagining yourself in a bubble. And I teach people if someone, so what is in your bubble? What is in your space? Are someone else's opinions in your space? Get it out. Is someone else's judgments of you in your space? Get it out, which means we have to first know where our space is. And most of us have no idea. And so it's all about figuring out where is my space? Because once we get all that noise from outside of us away, we can find this moment of, and most of us are really needing that right now. So the Healing Circle was born last year when COVID struck. And um, physically, we might have to have some distance, but mentally, emotionally, energetically, we can still connect. And so that's how they were born. And it's just a time, like I said, to get a little time out from life and connect with other people, get some new resources, get some help. And it's a way for me to offer some insight to people for free, because right now people really need some help. No question. So... Um... I know someone who uh, thinks license plates have meaning and, uh, and they read uh, license plates and, 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 and find meaning in license plates. Would hypnosis cure that? <laughs> I don't think that's a problem. <laughs> it depends on what the license plates are telling them. If the license plates are telling them that they're wonderful, I say keep that story. It's great. If they're telling them that, you know, life sucks and they should hate themselves, I would work with them to let them find a better story in the license plates. <laughs> so so still believe the license plates have a message but find a better message why not in the spiritual world we're taught that feathers have messages that dimes have messages that numbers have messages if a message empowers your life i mean let's be honest based on the information that we're picking up around us we're getting a sliver of the data available so most of the story is just, we're just making it up anyways and so if you're making it up anyways make it up better and so if you can if you're making it up anyways make it up better okay. make it up better Right. Okay, if, so I've got I've got another friend who uh, you talked about the person who always is complaining. This person always complains about one specific relationship in their life. You're saying, um, write it down, journal it. Don't uh, don't incessantly talk about it with people. I'm saying that the person that they're talking to probably needs to stop being nice and be more compassionate. Say, I am so sorry you're going through some stuff, and I would love that you find a better way to vent it because I don't want to be part of you reinstalling this story. And then you can say to them, maybe it'd be better to vent it in a journal and uh, people get touchy. So I, I would advise you then duck because they're probably going to swing. <laughs> people okay. like those stories. Eating disorder. What's the solution to that? Oh, eating disorders are complex little beasts. It's about um, not knowing how to take responsibility for ourselves. It's about not knowing that we're allowed to exist and have opinions different from the people around us. Um, it depends on what side of the spectrum you're on. If it's more the anorexic bulimic side, it is a fear of not having responsibility. So over control on the other side with overeating, it's a terror of having any responsibility at all. I want everyone else just to take care of me and then everywhere in between. And so eating disorders, when I work with them are all about bridging the gap between head and heart and then giving them tools and skills on how to know what they want, how to get their needs met, and to know that they're allowed to have an opinion different from others. Addiction? Isolation. 
It's isolation. We've done, there's so many studies that show that when, like, I think, I can't remember the specifics of it, but they did, it's like rat utopia. And they gave these mice this everything they wanted and access to everything they wanted and then drugs, but no other mice around and they would get addicted. But when they had the same environment, but other mice and rats around to, to socialize, they didn't need the drugs as much. And so there's a lot of evidence that shows that isolation uh, mentally, emotionally from others and from ourselves is where addictions come into play. And so I think giving people ways to connect with themselves and with others is a great first step. Maybe not the be all and end all solution, but a great first step. Remind us your website. www.livelifeunbroken.com. Jennifer Fable, thank you so much for joining us tonight. What an interesting conversation. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Well, that's our show for tonight. To remind you, I come to you every night, Monday through Friday at 7 o'clock on 960 AM. You can stream me online at www.saga960am.ca. You can get all my uh, podcasts and video casts on the Saga 960 AM website, on the briancrombie.com website, uh, videos on YouTube, uh, on Facebook, and uh, all of my podcasts are available on uh, Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Audible. Uh, you can get me almost anywhere. So have a great weekend, everyone. And thank you so much, uh, Jennifer Fable, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Do you want to learn more about how you can continue your journey and experience my virtual healing circles in real time? If so, check out livelifeunbroken.com circle and join my free circle membership. Receive weekly reminders, bonus material and recaps, plus special offers, as well as access to my weekly virtual healing circles. If you're ready to leave behind the fears and limitations of the ego and step into the spiritual life you've long known is waiting for you, you're invited to join me, Jen Fable, for a soul-nourishing journey into the exploration of you, the universe, and all space in between. Take control of your spiritual journey to attain a new level of understanding and connection to yourself and the people in your life. During our time and circle together, I will share with you all the tips and tricks you need to make playing with energy fun, easy, and most of all, effective. Together, we'll learn how to cultivate our inner compass to enable us to walk our path with grace and ease. We'll open the space with a candle meditation, and after I will share with you my favorite grounding practices and lead you through a circle casting, guided meditation, and breath work, followed by a soul-inspiring gratitude practice. If your soul has been calling out to you and you're ready to tune in and listen, go to www.livelifeunbroken.com circle and register today for your Zoom access information. That's www dot l i v e l i f e u n b r o k e n dot com backslash circle c i r c l e. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>